So hello everyone, my name is Lee Nichols and I'd like to welcome all of you to another installment of Hydrocarbon Processing's podcast series, The Main Column. So we have two very special guests joining us today to provide tips on how to select the right rotary control valve. Now, before we welcome them in, I would like to tell you that you can subscribe to The Main Column podcast by clicking on the subscribe button, which is located on the podcast website, or you can use your smartphone device by saying, hey, Google, Alexa, or Siri, subscribe me to the Main Column Podcast. So with that, I'd like to welcome in our special guests today, Jason Jablonski and Wade Helfer, both of Emerson. Now, a little bit more about our, our, our interviewees today. So first, Jason is the Director of Rotary Engineering at Emerson Automation Solutions. and has 20 years of experience in the design, testing, and manufacturing of process control equipment. He received his BS degree in mechanical engineering from Iowa State University and his MBA degree from the University of Texas at Dallas. He is a project management professional, agile certified practitioner, and a member of the API subcommittee on piping and valves. Now, Wade has 22 years of industry experience in the design and evaluation of control and isolation valves for a variety of industries, and is an expert in rotary valve seals, butterfly valve float dynamics, and high temperature valve design. He completed his BS degree and graduate coursework in mechanical engineering from Iowa State University and is the rotary technologist at Emerson Automation Solutions. So with that, I believe we have the right people. So Jason, Wade, how are you guys doing today? Doing pretty good. Yeah, Thanks for having good. us. Yeah, I'm doing well. Thank you. Excellent. So first, I really want to thank you guys for joining us for this discussion on this critical topic because, because what I'm told, refineries and petrochemical plants have a few valves. Think that's correct <laughs> but just getting now just for this discussion we are looking at a particular valve which is rotary control valves now for those that may not be familiar with this type of valve can you explain what a rotary control valve is and what its purpose is sure um, there are two primary types of control valves rotary and globe and they're made up of three basic components a valve an actuator and a positioner the control element inside of the valve is used to control a specific process variable. That could be like flow rates, pressures, or temperatures. Uh, the actuator serves as a muscle that moves the control element, and that leaves the digital positioner acting as the brains that tells the actuator when the control element needs to move. And there are a few defining characteristics linked to rotary control valves. Uh, the control element in a rotary valve is connected to a shaft that rotates and it takes 90 degrees of rotation to go from a closed position to its full open position. So the control element could be a disc from a butterfly valve or a ball from a ball valve. Uh, rotary valves are typically compact in size when compared to glow valves, which means they uh, have less weight and space, take up less space. And so that provides some benefits when thinking about the piping layout and the challenges associated with installation and removal. And they typically have higher flow capacities, which mean the end user can use smaller sized rotary valves, uh, leading to a more economical solution. So the purpose of control valves is they typically regulate flow and its primary function is to maintain a target flow rate or set point. Rotary control valves are intended to operate at varying degrees of travel, not just open or closed. They're typically sized to maintain the set point at mid travel, so around 45 degrees open. Changing process conditions can cause the control element to migrate away from this initial travel position. And it's this change in valve travel allows the valve to hold its set point. So for example, 
you know, something happens downstream of the control valve that causes the flow rate to change from 100 SCFH to 90, then the valve opens up, allows more flow to pass to bring the flow rate back to its set point of 100 SCFH. And, and then I'm kind of curious, how is it different than an isolation valve? Yeah, so the main difference between an isolation valve and a control valve is how they are used or their functional requirements. Now, isolation valves are often referred to as on-off valves, which implies they're either in a full open position or in a closed position. So they allow as much flow as possible or they stop the flow of process. Control valves are being asked to maintain a set point while allowing the process to deviate from that set point by a small amount. So these valves are focused on maximizing the efficiency or effectiveness of the loop. So less process variability typically leads to cost savings. Excellent. And so I guess the big question here then is, is, is how is this type of valve critical to the processing facilities uh, operations? Because as you know, most of our listeners here are people who work in refineries and plants. Yeah, yeah, it's very critical to the operation. A, a control valve is used to control these uh, key or critical characteristics of the process. Think of flow, pressures, temperatures, levels, uh, things like that, everything within the system. And the valve performance has a direct impact on the quality of the product and also the efficiency of those systems. Uh, so if we look at a refinery as an example, some applications within a refinery. Um, refinery has lots of rotary control valves. Uh, the pressures tend to be below 750 PSI, so it's uh, good for a rotary control valve. A any furnaces you have that has a fuel gas inlet control valve, and that valve is used to maintain the furnace temperature, and by maintaining that correctly, you reduce energy costs. Uh, if you look at a distillation column, you have a feedstock uh, control valve controlling that feedstock as it comes into the column. Uh, performance of that valve impacts the ability of that uh, distillation column to perform and uh, impacts reboil reflux controls downstream of it. At the bottom of that distillation column, you have a level control. You have a valve controlling that level tends to be a very challenging application. Uh, the fluid's very viscous, uh, almost like a sludge at times. It can have entrained erosive particles, so selection is key. Uh, if we look in a, a fractionator example, uh, you have a reflux control valve for distillation, and that's critical to maintain that vapor uh, liquid balance in the column, it and that directly impacts the column efficiency. And within these columns, any disruption uh, can take possibly hours to work its way through the column. So uh, you want to make sure that valve is operating correctly. Uh, you could get around that by adding extra energy to the system or time to process, but um, a good control valve really saves the user money. And so those are some hydrocarbon examples. Uh, even within your process, there may be others like an air valve and a cat cracker. So this may be critical to catalyst regeneration, uh, maintaining correct temperature, and that impacts the efficiency of that conversion. Those are some examples. Excellent, and so that's a great segue to my next question, uh, because it's kind of the, the main theme of why we're here today is, so if you're an operator and you're building a new unit, maybe doing training or whatever it is, what should a user look for when they're selecting a rotary control valve? Yeah. It, you, 
as a user, you really got to dive into the construction of that valve. And there's probably three big factors that I'd consider uh, as a user in selecting a valve. You want to look for a valve that has a uh, low friction, uh, low loss motion, and then you want to account for the dynamic torque. So if we look at the friction within the valve, it's really as a result of the drivetrain, those components that translate the, the torque from the actuator to that final control element, that ball or that disc. Um, a lot of that friction can come from the shaft bearings. Uh, those bearings support the shaft against the pressure drop. Uh, you want that low friction, high wear resistant material. Uh, as a designer of a rotary control valve, you want to limit the contact stress to maximize the life. Uh, another big one within the drivetrain is packing friction. Uh, the packing are those malleable rings. Uh, normally in uh, hydrocarbon surface, you'd see PTFE or graphite. And the purpose is to prevent leakage to atmosphere around that shaft. And, and that's important, but it tends to be a trade-off of leakage and torque. As you compress that packing, you reduce leakage, but you also increase torque. So you need to account for that. Uh, the last one uh, within friction is the seating forces. So this is a big one. As that ball, that disc uh, seat closed, uh, there's some friction and that tends to be proportional to shutoff. As in to say that's a trade-off. Uh, you tend to get better shutoff, but you may have higher friction. And this results in what we call breakout torque. And that's a large component of uh, actuator sizing. And that's also why uh, valves with double or triple offsets have an advantage is that when they come out of that seat, uh, they lose contact quickly and reduce the uh, uh, the friction, the, the torque necessary. Uh, if we look at loss motion, <clears throat> it's important in a control valve uh, where it may not be in an isolation valve. And loss motion may be known as backlash or dead band. Um, it, it's really the difference between the input to that valve and the output in motion. And, and there are probably two main causes, uh, loose connections. So you think sloppy connections, uh, you have an actuator uh, coupled to a valve stem. There may be a couple uh, links there. They may be sloppy. And then the valve stem to the control element. And these connections can get worse over time as those parts wear. Uh, as a user, what you want to look for is a valve design that has some zero clearance connections. They may be clamped, they may be pinned or keyed, but it, it prevents that sloppiness. And then shaft windups, one a lot of people outside of us may not think about, and that's a uh, a twisting of the shaft due to that torque. So uh, this is greatly affected by shaft diameter. Um, you want to minimize the amount of that twist uh, because of that control valves may be designed with larger shafts. Uh, on the sizing side, uh, we talked about breakout torque, but there's also dynamic torque. And this is a result of the fluid flowing past that control element, uh, that ball, that disc, whatever it may be. And you can think of that control element as a vein or an airfoil within the uh, flow stream that as the fluid flows by it imparts a, a torque uh, on the valve assembly. And this is something that really can only be determined through testing. Maybe some simulation can be used to predict it. And it's important to know that that dynamic torque uh, changes with travel as that vein rotates. Um, as a control valve user, you want to operate away from any torque reversals that may be uh, part of that valve assembly. If not, you want to make sure you have those tight connections to avoid any backlash. Um, so dynamic torque along with breakout torque, those are really the two big factors that go into uh, sizing an actuator. Excellent, and so that's a nice segue to my next one on actuators. So I'm kind of curious if you can go through some of the typical actuator types. 
Yeah, so when you think of an actuator, it, it's gonna be similar to a valve in that you have some of the same issues uh, with friction and loss motion. Um, it, there may actually be additional components or linkages or levers within that used to translate a, a linear actuator force to a valve torque. Um, one other thing that a lot of people don't consider is bracket design. So the bracket that mounts the actuator to the valve, if it's not strong or stiff enough, you can get some unacceptable twisting, uh, similar to, as we talked about, a wind up in a valve shaft. Uh, there can also be loose connections uh, between the actuator and the valve, and those may cause slipping, resulting in some loss of motion. Uh, there are a lot, there's a big variety of actuators out there. Uh, so for control valve, we're shooting for that, you know, plus or minus 1%, that tight flow control. Uh, the most common one's probably a, a pneumatic spring and diaphragm design. Um, this uses lower, uh, mostly pneumatic pressure acting on a molded diaphragm, which is opposed by a spring. You tend to get good controllability out of that. You have little friction. Diaphragms are very responsive to any changes. Uh, one that's similar to that is a piston, a pneumatic piston actuator, uh, similar to the diaphragm one, but it has a piston instead. That piston allows for higher pressures, higher pressures uh, result in higher torques. The trade-off is that you get some increased friction due to those piston seals. Uh, rotary vane actuators are kind of unique. Uh, they could be pneumatic, they could be high, high pressure hydraulic, but they're unique in that they have no link linkages within the actuator. The, the vein is directly attached to the actuator shaft. And because of that, you, you get a constant torque with none of that lost motion or that, uh, uh, that those uh, problems you have with other valves or other actuators. <clears throat> There's another one, pneumatic piston, rack and piston design, it, it tends to be very compact and economical. You have two pistons attached to a, a rack and each of those racks acts on a pinion at the center of that actuator that's attached to the actuator shaft. So it's compact, but you tend to get a lot of friction with all those uh, interacting parts. Uh, there's probably two more, uh, maybe a little less common. Um, an electric it tends to only be used where there's not a, a good pneumatic or hydraulic supply, it tends to be a little slower acting. Uh, and then electrohydraulic, which ha has good control, it tends to be fast, good control. Uh, it's a self-contained system, but it tends to be uh, a little more complex. So those are some of the more common actuator types. Uh, also, when selecting an actuator, you want to consider some other things. Uh, Wade, you may want to talk about that. Sure. Um, so one way to help identify the correct rotary valve for a given application is knowing the installed gain of the process loop. So installed gain is the rate of change in the flow due to a change in valve travel. So as an indicator for speed of response. So for a properly performing process loop, it's desirable for the installed gain to be somewhere between a half and two. So if the installed gain exceeds this upper limit, the control valve can experience a lot of wear and tear because the control element is constantly moving, which leads to premature wear on seals and bearings found in both the valve and actuator. Now, if the gain gets too high, this state can result in an unstable loop, which could require placing the valve in manual mode. And that's the last thing an end user wants to do when they've invested the time and money in putting an automated control valve into their process. Now, if we look at at the other end of this, if the installed gain falls below that lower limit of a, of a half, you know, the process loop can be described as sluggish, meaning the loop will be slow in responding to process changes. 
you know, process loop with a low installed gain can make an automated control valve appear like a manual operated valve, and that's not desirable either. Now this installed gain is going to change with valve travel. So one wants to select a valve that stays within this tolerance band for as much travel as possible. You know, this is the usable range of the control valve, and we refer to this as the installed control range. So for example, although a butterfly valve can rotate between zero and 90 degrees, its installed control range typically falls between 30 and 50 degrees of rotation. So if the end user knows that for their process loop, the valve's gonna travel within that 30 to 50 degree band, you know, the butterfly valve provides an economical solution that's going to respond or the loop's going to perform like the end user wants. But if the end user knows that the range of travel that's going to be required of the valve is going to deviate pretty far from that 30 to 50 degrees, butterfly valve probably isn't the best choice to, to go forward with. And, and being able to predict this range is not easy. It's not a trivial task and requires information about the end user's process loop. Uh, you know, digital positioners, those play an important role in maximizing the end user's experience. You know, it's a communicative device with diagnostic capabilities, allowing end users to stay tuned in to the overall health of the valve. You know, alerts them when something is misbehaving, which helps them determine an appropriate time for maintenance. You know, and this intelligence is only going to get better as our industry goes through its digital transformation. You know, the adjustability associated with these mini computers allows one to obtain the finest level of control. You know, to a point, one can dampen down an overly active control valve or excite a sluggish one. You know, giving you one more way to maximize the installed control range. So there's a lot of factors that go into identifying a cost-effective valve solution that provides appropriate performance. You know, the performance characteristics tied to the valve and actuator, the enhancements that come with a good digital positioner, and then having some basic information about the end user's process loop. Perfect. And then, Jason, Way, we can't really thank you enough for, for spending a couple minutes with us. My last question I have is, for listeners on here that, that want to know more information about rotary control valves, uh, does Emerson have any places they can go to find out a little bit more information about the stuff we talked about today? Yeah, certainly. Uh, you can just go onto the web, visit emerson.com, uh, looking for rotary control valves, search for the Fisher uh, branded products, and there's lots of bulletins, instruction manuals, uh, application guides that can help an end user uh, choose and select a, a valve for their application. Excellent. Well, again, Jason Away, I really want to thank you for your time today to discuss this crucial topic. And of course, as always, we want to thank all of you for listening to the latest installment of Hydrocarbon Processing's podcast series, The Main Column. Thanks again. Thanks. All right. Thanks, Lee.